This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It is being called our Saigon moment. Zoomers will remember that striking image of an American helicopter fleeing Saigon after the Vietnam War with people desperately trying to get on board. And there was a similar heartbreaking scene on the tarmac in Kabul today. And this as we know that Canada and certainly the United States have not repatriated the Afghan nationals who worked with them and are now in grave danger. What do you think about the way this is unfolding and the way Canada is conducting itself in terms of all those allies? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now we go to Dr. Nipa Banerjee, Senior Fellow at the School of International Development at the University of Ottawa. She was head of Canada's aid program in Afghanistan from 2003 to 2006. Also joining us, Dr. Elliot Tepper, a professor of international relations at Carleton University. Welcome and thank you for being with us. Good to be with you. Dr. Banerjee, we will start with you. Um, Everybody seems to have been surprised by the speed that this happened. What about you? Um, I am surprised by the speed, but, you know, this whole thing was in the making for a very long time. I would say even after the 2002 Bonn Conference, um, uh, when the donors got together to discuss what was going to be uh, their uh, their work in Afghanistan. And this was, in the beginning, it was um, probably not noticed at all, um, because we were all honestly very confident, very enthusiastic. Things were blossoming in the first few years, and uh, so we did not know. And then gradually um, uh, we had indicators uh, with um, what was going on um, with, the, with the Taliban. Uh, and the Taliban, in the background, they were resurging. Well, we, I don't think the international community paid much attention. Um, but there were indicators that what we were trying to do for instance, the security sector reforms, they were not really exactly successful. Um, uh, and But we did not pay attention. Dr. And then Tepper? gradually when things started, like, you know, as I said, right after 2002, the Bonn Conference, you know, these, um, uh, the, the Taliban in the background started resurging and they were helped by um, our ignoring the uh, neglecting to look at what was going on with them. Dr. Tepper, um, what is your view? Were you surprised by the speed with which this happened? Uh, Yes, yes, I was surprised by the speed with with which this happened. But I would say... Just a minute, I'm trying to bring in Dr. Tepper. 
(laughs) (laughs) This is a two-way conversation. Thanks. I hope the technology is working. Yeah, I Uh, hope the technology is working, too. It's entirely possible she didn't uh, hear your your call on to me. Well, it's a pleasure being here, particularly with Dr. Banerjee, who is so knowledgeable about Afghanistan. Uh, The specific question of am I surprised or am I shocked, I am shocked but not surprised. Uh, I'm shocked by the speed, but I'm not surprised at the at the resurgence of the Taliban and and their actual coming to power. It is, however, a shocking development because what had been a generation of democratic space for the people of Afghanistan, not a a cessation of war, um, and we can talk about that, but a whole generation has grown up despite everything else, uh, and it's a very young country. The population is overwhelmingly under 30, they've known a type of peace and a type of democratic space that is uh, now going to be plunged into darkness instead. And Dr. Tepper, um, is uh, Pakistan in the background on all of this? Pakistan undoubtedly is in the background. The precise nature of their relationship to the Taliban uh, is always a murky one. I had an interview with the editor of a leading newspaper in Pakistan many years ago at the start of all this, and she called the Taliban runaway puppets. We should perhaps remind ourselves, you know, what is in Afghanistan and what's the Taliban and how did we get here? Uh, the Afghan state is a, a classic buffer state between high-pressure zones, and it's very hard to maintain that. But it has been, the cliche, a graveyard of empires. Those that try to destabilize the buffer zone Alexander the Great, the British at the peak of their of their power couldn't incorporate it over three wars into into uh, India. Then the Soviets failed. We should remember that this situation is not a twenty year war for the Afghans. It started actually in 1973 when the delicate balance with a monarch presiding over a decentralized country was upset by a coup. Uh, that then ultimately led to the 1978 invasion by the Russians, not the Russians, the USSR at that point. They limped home a decade yeah. later. So the Taliban then came into that. That's where they entered. There was chaos. They were welcomed in as bringing peace and uh, out of chaos. But, of course, after that, we know what happened. Well, Dr. Banerjee, I mean, it has ever been thus. And uh, Joe Biden sort of said, listen, we can't do anything here. Is that a valid argument? Um, see, Joe Biden hadn't, what, what I know is Joe Biden um, disagreed, in fact, with uh, President Obama. At the time, he increased the troops and um, and. Soon after uh, Joe Biden took power, you know, he uh, announced this. So it was in his mind all the time. Well, I I don't think it was logical in the sense, I would say the idea of the departure of the foreign powers, you know, that, that definitely, uh, I mean, it's not an impractical thing to think. You know, in practice, you know, the country cannot have um, thousands of troops from international community in the country. I mean, it's an, if it's an independent country. So, therefore, the idea is okay, except it was done without proper planning 
and without giving it a bit of time to to plan the process and launch the process. So that's what surprised everybody. And um, and also we did not ever think that Taliban was as strong as they showed up to be. And the army of the Afghans was that was trained trained by um, by the international community and the U.S. that you know that they would not be able to um, fight with the Taliban because we have been fed. They're willing. Uh, oh yes, I mean the Afghan government. Okay, the Afghan government and the U.S. military have been saying that the. Um, uh, Afghanistan National Security and Defense Forces are absolutely wonderful. You know, they are admirable. They are doing an excellent job, etc. Well, in the meantime, you know, I mean, they had done, like the United States Army and our, I shouldn't put it on the U.S. only. You know, we all provided troops. Canada left in 2014, and we were criticized for that, that we left at a very critical time. We are talking to Dr. Nipa Banerjee and Dr. Elliot Tepper about what that means to people. And Dr. Tepper, we're hearing stories that people who sent their daughters to school are now regretting it because they are worried that their lives are now in danger. Yes, the whole question of is this a different Taliban than the Taliban that ruled before that sheltered Osama bin Laden that made, you know, dragged the whole world into a war on terror? Are they different this time? Because last time they were, uh, they were committing so many different kinds of crimes, including uh, the putting, there were many beheadings and things. But the main thing, that if, from our point of view, after Canada left, as you mentioned, we, along with everyone else, invested very heavily in programs for women and children. Are we going to go back to those dark days? There's no reason to think that the Taliban has changed fundamentally. They may change their tactics. Uh, they are now talking about uh, very nicely about uh, well, nobody has any reason to worry. There's an amnesty. But there's every reason to think the Taliban remain the medieval uh, form of their interpretation of Sharia law which is detrimental to uh, women's rights, among others. So the, the, we've already heard stories that in Kunduz and elsewhere where they've taken power a bit earlier, <laughs> they move fast, they're already selling, uh, providing, excuse me, providing women to their soldiers. That is, that's sexual slavery. Uh, there's good reason to be, be very concerned about the future of, Af- of, yes, of Afghanistan, particularly the women of Afghanistan. Dr. Banerjee, what uh, do you think will happen to women and women who've been educated? Well, I assume that the women who have been educated will make their way out of Afghanistan. I'm very concerned about the rural women. When I, um, I, I traveled to Afghanistan, except in the last one and a half years, I travel to Afghanistan all the time, and I go into rural areas as well. You know, the women in the rural areas have not seen much of the reforms that um, that we talk about. You know, they are not the, um, you know, emblems of advanced gender equality or anything, because, you know, many, much of the reforms haven't reached them. But... Um, you know, to take a 
positive view at this time because there is no other view that's possible. I mean, when you ask me, am I concerned? I'm concerned about the women, but the thing is we need to, if we want to do something, I'm taking a positive look at, I mean, not a dreadfully positive look, but little more positive than or everybody else is thinking maybe. I think that the Taliban, they have changed um, in 20 years' time. They know, they know that the way they governed at that time, uh, at the time when they were there in power, um, that will not go. You know, they don't, they need the money for running the country and the government, they need money from foreign aid from the different donors. And the donors, they know, will not be supportive. Um, I mean, they will not be giving any anything to them, to the Taliban, if they acted the same way. And second thing is that, you know, I remember during the, well, whether or not they will stick to it is a different issue, but during their, uh, during the negotiations, the Taliban some of the Taliban leaders had said, well, they are not necessarily against women's education. They, they would provide education to women, um, and women will be allowed to work, um, and the, uh, but they cannot become president. I mean, we all laughed at that time at that. Like, you know, we are not even talking about a woman being a president. We are talking about, about getting, getting, you know, getting women safe and um, free from violence, etc. But um, but they had said that. And what I hear from Kabul, uh, what the Taliban is saying, yeah, they will not they will not slaughter people. They are asking people to go back to work. I mean, go, going back to work. Of course, this is to some extent a PR campaign for themselves that they are that they are doing well. But um, you know, I I'm trying to take a positive look, thinking that they would agree um, uh, with the international community that there will be, there will be, you know, reform in how they handle the governance Do- and women's issues. Dr. Tepper, what do you think of that? I very much appreciate the positive uh, aspect of Dr. Banerjee's uh, viewpoint. It is possible that they are far more sophisticated now in terms of managing their international relations. They have sent a delegation to Russia, to China, to Iran, in each case saying the right things, saying you don't have any worries. China, you don't have to worry. We're going to mess around with the Uyghur Muslim population. They've said to Russia, we're not going to allow any extremism to come out of Afghanistan to bother you and then different things for Iran. The fact that they are behaving as if they're more aware of an outside world and they may shape their behavior accordingly does give some hope that they will at least do not the worst <laughs> they've done in the past. But, uh, Dr. Tepper, we've, we've heard about stuff on the ground atrocities on the ground yes. that 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 are not uh you know that are not uh, they don't agree that it's, it's what they're saying and what they're doing are two different things yes i think that's uh, again where i started uh, this conversation that they are not presenting a view to the world that they are changed what we know from the limited evidence we have so far of their behavior in the places that they've taken over in recent times is that uh they may indeed 
not do the mass executions. And I don't want to go into the gruesome details of how they behaved in the past uh, in sheltering uh, Osama bin Laden. By the way, there's no reason to think they've broken relations with al-Qaeda. There's no evidence for that at all. But they may indeed try to shape their behavior in a way that uh, does not alienate outsiders to the point that it affects their ability to govern. You're quite right, Libby. On the ground, from what we hear, the signs are not good. And Dr. Tepper, we just have 20 seconds left, but are we going to be able to bring back any more of our allies, or um, are they just now in grave danger? Very quickly, please. Our people are indeed danger. People who have helped Canada are, and the U.S. and others are indeed in grave danger. They cannot physically get to uh, the airports right now. The special forces are are there to help them. But, yes, I think there's every reason to be concerned about those who are left behind. Okay, well, we will be following the developments on this. In the meantime, thank you so much, Dr. Nipa Banerjee, Dr. Elliot Tepper. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. And as we've been reporting since Friday, the Liberals plan to make vaccination mandatory for federal workers and those in federally regulated industries. What do their unions think? And will there be legal challenges to this. I'm joined by Chris Elward, who is the national president of the Public Service Alliance of Canada. Hi, Chris. How are you? Very well, Libby. Thank you. So what do you think of this? Well, I mean, we support the uh, the mandate, the mandatory uh, vaccinations mandate, uh, but with some nuances. Uh, certainly, uh, our members uh, have a right to work in a safe and healthy workplace. I mean, it's a basic fundamental of any union. Uh, and always has been, to advocate for safe and healthy workplaces. And this is just another way to do that. Obviously, the vaccinations have, you know, proven to be the best method to slowing down and stopping the spread of COVID-19. And here we are in the middle of a fourth wave. So uh, we do have some concerns with it, though. Uh, This has not been discussed with any of the federal unions. This has not been uh, consulted uh, on. Uh, and we do have some concerns around human rights issues and, and medical issues uh, as well that, you know, members very well may have a legitimate uh, concern with being uh, vaccinated. So we have to make sure that uh, our members uh, in those situations are protected. Uh, and, and again, we're looking forward to seeing the actual implementation and rollout plan from the government so that we can have proper and meaningful consultation on this so that we can have our concerns uh, addressed. Well, uh, I think they covered that, that people with medical exemptions, you know, will, will be okay. But uh, I'm also curious in terms of people who just say this is private and you can't tell me what to put in my body. Do you expect uh, legal challenges, and or do you think the law as it stands now that can the government put this in without any changes to the law? Well, I mean, certainly, I think you you very well may see some uh, charter challenges uh, if they were to come out and say, you know, basically no exception. Uh, if you want to work in the federal public service, you must be vaccinated. Then, of course, they're going to see charter challenges uh, against that. Uh, like I said, we're, we're still waiting to see uh, and be consulted on the actual implementation plan. So when they say 
that, you know, with people with medical reasons, they're going to be okay. What does that mean? They're going to be okay. Does that mean that you're going to force them to work from home and work remotely and not allow them into the workplace? So, again, we, we, we have a lot more, obviously, questions than we do uh, answers at this point. Uh, since this was announced on Friday, as I said, there, there's been no consultation uh, with any of the unions. We represent 160,000 federal public sector workers, uh, and, and I'm hopeful that that consultation will take place in the coming weeks. Well, good luck with that in the middle of an election. Um, True. Uh, now, I've, I've uh, come up against uh, some other uh, concerns. So, for instance, on Free For All Friday, we had a caller who said, hey, I am vaccinated fully, and and he works in a unionized, federally regulated industry, but I, I'm not going to tell anybody because I want my privacy rights. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, certainly uh, employees have a right to, uh, to privacy. And again, that's another question that we need answered. How are you going to determine who actually has been vaccinated? Uh, you know, we don't we don't foresee, obviously, somebody going into the workplace and being held down and, and, and being vaccinated. That, that, of course, is not going to happen. Uh, but there are there, uh, several uh, questions still out there that this government hasn't answered. Uh, and for them to make this announcement on Friday, uh, we were giving a given a very quick heads up that this was coming. But that was it. Uh, there's as I said, there's been no consultation. None of our issues have been uh, yet addressed. Uh, by the government. Uh, so, you know, again, the proof will be in the pudding, right? Once we see the implementation plan, once we get our concerns addressed so that our members' privacy uh, rights are protected, our members' human rights uh, are, are, are protected, uh, I'm sure we'll have a, a, a lot more input uh, into the implementation plan and a lot more to say about it, uh, certainly at that time. Well, uh, but obviously I wouldn't be so sure that... Boy. I wouldn't Sorry? be so sure about getting a lot more input with with this particular government um well i mean it, it's through treasury board that they would have to uh, consult on we have been uh, told that there will be consultation uh, on it before it's uh, implemented if they don't do any consultation uh, with the unions then you're going to see some major issues i think in the workplace because as much as we do support uh the announcement uh we have some issues that we need to uh, to get addressed uh, before we can actually agree to any implementation uh, of this. The, uh, you know, one of our commentators uh, sort of uh, floated the idea that maybe employers or, you know, the, the government should change the law to indemnify anybody against uh, human rights challenges as a result of this. Uh, is that something that you foresee or would support? Uh, no, I mean, like I said, there, there, there are members who would have human rights uh, issues uh, regarding mandatory vaccinations, and we have to make sure that those rights are protected. And as, as far as, you know, uh, any kind of, uh, you know, the, the giving up of those rights, no, we would definitely not agree to, uh, to any of that. Uh, we have to make sure that, you know, a couple of things, as I said, uh, that our members have a right to work in uh, the workplaces that are safe and healthy, uh, but yet they have also other rights that, uh, that need to be protected as well, including human rights, including privacy rights, uh, medical uh, rights as well. So, again, uh, unfortunately, there, you know, there's still a lot of unanswered questions uh, regarding those types of things. But we do know scientifically proven that vaccinations do slow down and stop the spread of COVID-19. And, that, and I think that's very important 
you know, the fact that we're in the middle now of a, a, fourth, wave, a fourth wave uh, of COVID. Okay, Chris, I guess we will have to check back with you after uh, you've had some of those consultations, see where things stand. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we will uh, be talking about the horrible situation in Afghanistan with the Taliban overrunning the place with record speed and what it means to people who were allies of Canada, what it means to women, and what, if anything, we can do about it when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's on. And that is as expected. But speaking for myself, there is some added adrenaline now that the election is official. And I'm sure the politicians of all parties are hoping to get that response from people in general. Because what we're hearing so far is that this may be an election with a very low turnout. And the Zoomer Squad is here to zero in on the key issues for our demographic. My take is that it is actually the same for most every age group and that it is mandatory vaccination for some groups and vaccine passports. Now, just as the Liberals were dropping in the polls, I think they guessed right on those issues, and they announced them just before pulling the plug on Parliament. They also set a deadline of October, in other words, after the election. If this is what you want to see, you have to vote for them. That would be the message. The Conservatives wouldn't do this. They're talking about mandatory testing, and the NDP wants it in place by Labor Day, which isn't going to happen because it's an election issue. But enough about my thoughts. Let's hear from you. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Let's bring in David Kravitz. Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Hi, guys. Good morning. Hi, Good, morning. Good afternoon, Libby. Hi, everyone. Okay, so uh, let's begin with David. You are the demographic Maven, uh, do you agree with me that at this point the biggest issues are the same for all age groups? Uh, I actually think so, but I question whether the uh, election can be sustained around the issue of uh, mandatory vaccines. I think that's a topic, but I don't think that's a sufficiently dramatic topic to galvanize uh, the voters between the different parties. That's just my opinion. I, I think it's pretty thin to base it all on that. But I I do think that the recovery from COVID, the economic recovery, the dollars and cents, uh, the deficit, all those really apply equally across the board, maybe health care and long-term care more intensively for, of course, for Zoomers. Okay. But yeah, that's all connected to mandatory vaccination and passports. Bill, what do you think? Well, I'm not sure that they're going to be able to go very far on vaccine passports because it's something 
that uh, certainly CARP uh, members were totally in favor of well before they made the uh, announcement. So whether or not uh, this could be an, an issue or not is a, is a question that, that, that I'd raise. I think they were probably trying to uh, encourage the other parties to to uh, open up on the, the issue so they could look like the good guys. Uh, but I don't think that's what we know that that's not what Canadians are really interested in in this election. Okay, Peter, let let me clarify what my thinking on it. I think people are very engaged in this subject. I'm surprised at the anger from the majority of people who believe in vaccination and have gotten theirs. And, uh, you know, I think it it's, might be the ballot question in a negative way because the Conservatives won't do it. And the NDP, well, um, yes, they push for it, but they're unlikely to form the government. So, uh, Peter, what do you think? Yeah, um, I, I think the Liberals uh, timed this perfectly. They they got uh, O'Toole on the defensive right right off the bat. Right, the first day of the campaign, O'Toole is scrambling to um, clarify his position on vaccinations, and so so everyone on his staff is vaccinated. He's he's vaccinated. Anyone traveling with him has to be vaccinated, but he is not in favor of mandatory vaccinations. So. I, I think you know it, it's a wedge issue. Like the liberals, the liberals are fantastic at developing these wedge issues to confuse voters, and um, the conservatives are fantastic at falling for the tra- falling into these traps and uh, making bewildering statements that uh, just just you know further distance themselves from uh, from from what people want. And and uh, you know. O'Toole's going to have to scramble to to bear or clarify his position on this, because I, I think, like you, Libby, I think the majority of people want uh, mandatory vaccinations, and uh, and and uh, you know O'Toole's going to be um, he's going to be hurt in the polls if he if he doesn't come out in favor of it. Well, uh, he's clarified his positions. He said he he would go for mandatory testing. Uh, and can you imagine that if there was for all these things, which would be traveling, civil servants, people in federally regulated industries, if, if the, the mandatory testing, the extra cost that would involve and, and uh, time. Uh, yeah, it, may, it makes no logistical sense at all. And, and I think his position should either be mandatory vaccinations or no mandatory vaccinations and, and, and just go at like, uh, like some of the U.S. Um, governors are doing. You know. Well, I, I think he's not quite that, but um, uh, I think you know it could it could make or break a vote. But David, since you disagree with me, what do you think will determine how people vote? Well, let, let, let me let me be clear. I don't think that the Liberals did this wrong. I agree with you that it's popular. I think that they did play it as a wedge issue and wrong-footed O'Toole. I have questioned though whether that can be sustained as the burning either-or issue from now till September 20th, that I must go to the polls and vote for Justin Trudeau because unless I do that, there won't be mandatory vaccines and there's nothing else more important in the country right now than mandatory vaccines. That's where I have some skepticism about whether they can sustain that as the driving force when you consider all the other things they're going to have to debate and deal with, such as the deficit, such as the economic recovery, 
Uh, I think we, you know there's a long list of uh, of topics, but I think um, that one to 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 build the whole house on that foundation. That's what I'm I'm questioning. I do think healthcare. I do think long-term care. Uh, there's an overall feeling of satisfaction with uh, the handling of the vaccines. It all worked out well in the end. But if we have a fourth wave and if it looks like it's a bit of a struggle, that may be a uh, harder ground to defend. And I think there's a lot more uh, vulnerability for the liberals, not that the conservatives can do anything to exploit it. I think they have a lot more vulnerability on economic insecurity, financial insecurity, uh, the deficits, where does the economy go from here, uh, how strong is the recovery going to be. Uh, th- those are all big topics, and I don't think that uh, mandatory vaccines is going to be a big enough band-aid to cover them all. Um, Bill, uh, what do you think? I mean, as to the fourth wave, it's not if um, the experts here in Ontario say we are in it. And when kids go back to school, I mean, we're already up above 500 cases a day. And when kids go back to school, uh, you know, who knows? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it certainly is worrying people. And by the way, uh, you know, David uh, is right when he's talking about people being in favor. We just finished the CARP survey and we had almost 5,000 uh, responses and 70 percent of them were from Ontario. So really good Ontario representation. And uh, 72 percent of our people want the vaccine passport for domestic travel and 87, almost 88 percent want the passport for international uh, uh, travel, and even 60% were in favor of vaccine passport to attend any publicly funded uh, facilities or events. So certainly, uh, in in terms of having support among uh, seniors for uh, vaccine passport, it certainly is there. But the the strongest we asked on our uh, survey, what what were the most important things to you uh, in this election and uh, access to physicians and access to overall health care were by far uh, number number one. And even though these are provincial uh, issues, when you come right down to who delivers them, uh, most people don't really understand that. And they're looking for the feds to make a change in those uh, those areas and those are the healthcare ones that are really hitting home to our seniors uh, in Ontario. Uh Peter, you know, uh one of the interesting things is that when people are polled about what's the most important issue, they often say healthcare. But uh you know, that's kind of an amorphous thing, especially since it's a provincial responsibility and they they vote on other things. So what do you think uh is what do you think will determine, you know, where that X goes? Well, you know, that, that's a great point, Libby. People, people sort of, um, you know, they project uh, themselves in these polls often, and, uh, you know, they, they, they put down the virtuous answer rather than uh, what they're really thinking. But, um, you know, th- this election, um, it, it'll be decided whether voters want to reward uh, Trudeau with the majority or whether they want to punish him for going to the polls uh, before the pandemic's over. And, and uh, you know, um, I, I think the whole thing is going to revolve around that because um, Trudeau certainly has a good record for, you know, um, programs to help people through the pandemic, but he has no 
real visible plan for how to pay that bill or or how to get the economy going. And, um, you know, so it's all a matter of faith. Do we have faith in Trudeau? Do we want to grant him a majority government? And and that's that's what the whole election is going to, you know, if there's a lot of apathy out there, it's going to affect voters' turnout and... uh, Trudeau is not going to get his majority. You see, David, see, that's one thing I do not think can be sustained. I mean, majority of people don't want this election. And there is a history of people punishing leaders who call an election early. But I don't think uh, the anger over whether or not there's election is 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 sustainable. Um, I don't I uh, I didn't argue that it's that there's even any anger about it. It just might be a kind of an exasperation. I would remind our listeners who are many of whom like me are certainly old enough to remember the six, the seemingly endless succession of elections between Diefenbaker and Pearson that kept on turning up marginal changes from last time around on hotly debated issues that didn't amount to a hill of beans. The morning poll today on um, the uh, one of the websites that is a averages out all the polls shows the liberals uh, just failing to get their majority uh, with 35.4 percent of the vote up from the 33 percent that they got last time. The conservatives down to 29.7 from 34. So I think that the odds are with the liberals. I don't know that there's anything compelling enough to give him the majority that he's looking for. And it may be that we're going to spend a lot of time and energy and analysis and, and money and trails for nothing, you know, for a, a, a kind of a status quo. Well, exactly. I mean, I, I, when I saw the polls before the election, I thought, aha, uh-huh, they could be hoisted on their own petard and come back with the same minority. <laughs> Which would be disastrous, right? And then... How so? Yeah, and then Trudeau will have to resign at that point. Well, you do you yeah. think, really? Because uh, he's been asked that. I don't think he answered the question. Well, no, he never... But I, I guess his, his father did the same thing in 72. He... He had a minority, and two years in, he went to the polls and and got his majority back. So maybe he's he's looking maybe at. He won't that. resign if there's a if he's still the prime minister. He won't resign. Yeah, I I I think uh, David has has the right idea on that, but that is a, a long way off. Let's take a call from Sita in Mississauga. Hello, Sita. Hi everyone. Hi Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? Oh, I don't know. Big headache. <laughs> from all his election talk. Anyway, um, this election is definitely about getting a majority government, and nothing is wrong with a politician leader to want to have this, but it's definitely the wrong time. COVID will be sending our country into the trillion. Taxpayers will have to pay for this forever. Um, Why spend time and money on an unwanted election when, when we could spend it on more pressing issues? So vaccine alone will not get my vote. Um, We have natural disaster, wildfire, long-term care, get rid of old buildings, give us new ones, cut taxes, property taxes, give us a break so people can own or stay in a home. Um, Fund more um, medical research for stuff like Lyme disease, fibromyalgia, things that you don't hear about. And healthcare, all these things are more pressing and more important right now than wasting money on ads and an election. 
Okay, well, there you go, Sita. Are you are you going to vote? Of course, yes. But um, and are you going to vote in person or by mail? By mail. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, and uh, you know that's that's another thing because in the last election there were a very, very small number of mail-in ballots. I think it was in the fifty thousand range. Uh, if I'm wrong, someone please correct me. And it's going to be in the millions this time. Or not, or people might just take a pass. That's true. That is absolutely true. <laughs> but you know, I think that's um, the real risk. I think that's the real risk that the that the uh, all the all the parties are facing now is that because people don't want the election, uh, they're just not going to uh, bother uh, voting. Uh, that will. Uh, Favor favor the party in power a little bit. It usually it usually does, but it's going to mean that we're going, we probably won't see much change from where we were uh, before, and it will be a huge waste of money. And as as the caller uh, said, financial uh, financial concerns, how we're going to afford all this, and how people are going to afford themselves to continue to uh, uh, to pay the prices that we're we're paying today. That's what's really concerning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and a note to our listeners, Libby, I did go on to Elections Canada this morning in anticipation of this topic. And if you're going to vote by mail, it has to be received by Elections Canada by the end of the election day itself, or it won't count. I know we're getting a lot of lurid headlines out of the United States of all the controversy about mail-in ballots, and should they accept them the day, two days later, a week later, it's all over the map down there. Here, you got to get it in by election day or it doesn't count. And I think that a lot of people might decide uh, it's just too much trouble. I think that, of course, there'll be more mail-in ballots than last time. But uh, I would be surprised if it was in the millions. I think a lot of people are just going to sit it out. Well, we'll see, you know, and uh, a program note, I am going to be talking uh, to someone from Elections Canada to get all the details on how the vote will be conducted. And that will be on Zoomer Weekend Review a week in, at the, on Sunday of this week. So uh, stay tuned for that because uh, there's going to be a lot of new things in there, I'm sure. Uh, so, you know, um, they say campaigns matter and, and everything can change, but you know that doesn't happen very often, Peter. No, it doesn't. And, and you know, it, um, it, it just like if there's a bombshell like, um, you know, like there was in the last election with the, with the blackface photos, you know, coming up from the past, that, that can change an election. But, um, you know, right now, I, I, I just don't see any issue that, that can, will, will swing my support in favor of the Liberals or in favor of the Conservatives or in favor of the NDP. I, I, and and I, I'm sure that's true of any voter. So, uh, you know, where we're sitting now, we could, you know, uh, uh, with the Liberals at 35, we could be there on Election Day the same way. Well, I think that's a, a big possibility. But speaking of the NDP, um, you know, in the last election, Jagmeet Singh was considered to be a big underachiever. And just watching him, I'd have to say that out of the three of them, he's the one who sounds more like, most like a, just a regular person, as opposed to a, a somewhat disingenuous politician. Uh, Bill, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree with you, uh, Libby. As you know, uh, 
uh, CARP and, and our CARP leadership has had a couple of opportunities to speak directly uh, to him. He is very well informed on uh, uh, seniors' issues, but he does speak uh, speak the language. People uh, understand what he's saying. He's able to put it into simple uh, simple terms, and he's he's growing in 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 respect, even among uh, the people that I talk to who would never support his party as a person. Uh, he is very likable, and I thought it was. Uh, very, uh, I, I wonder whether it was organized or just a, a wonderful coincidence that a day before the election, uh, he and his wife were able to announce uh, uh, the coming of a, of a child, which is just is something that everybody identifies with. And boy, that's got to be great political planning. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we'll we'll say that he planned that to the the election, but uh, you know, and when he says that that his influence, you know, made the Liberals give us more generous uh, pandemic uh, help, you know, that's very easy to believe. And and in terms of whether there had to be an election, he's the one who said, "Hey, we we're going to prop them up." So it's kind of a bit of a rock in a hard place, but you know, I th- I think he's he's looking good here. If you take this morning's poll, um, he denies the Liberals their majority. They pick up seats because remember their vote is much more efficient. The Conservatives actually got more votes than the Liberals last time, but it didn't translate into seats. Um, but this morning's poll has him at thirty-five seats compared to twenty-four last time. The Liberals pick up nine. The Conservatives drop thirteen. A majority for Trudeau, except for the NDP. And if the NDP is north of 30 seats, um, he's going to be the spoiler. And I think there's a lot of appealing reasons to think that that might be what happens, because if you're not really wild about Trudeau, and O'Toole is at best an unknown, and there's a whole bunch of negatives there, real or imagined, you might say, yeah, our best chance is to keep their feet to the fire, I'm not really enthusiastic about giving them free reign, but I don't like the other guy. So uh, let's uh, let the NDP have even more influence. And um, between the bloc and the NDP, they do the same thing they did last time. I think that's probably the likeliest outcome right now in terms of seats, frankly. Well, um, Jagmeet Singh started the campaign in Toronto, Danforth. It's now a liberal riding, but was an NDP stronghold. For quite a few years. And uh, there there are a couple of other ridings in Toronto. Well, one, at least, for sure, that could turn NDP. Uh, You know, I have to look at the number crunchers. I wonder if there are any in the GTA that the Conservatives might take. But I think that's a pretty tough ask. Yeah, you're right. and, And we've seen past elections, Toronto go completely red. So... Um, is is there any any reason it won't go red again this 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 time around? Well, I, I think the NDP might take a couple of ridings, mm. and they took a couple of ones that were a little unexpected in the provincial election. So I think you're right. I think that's the play that that the liberals the liberals need to make the case that there's a compelling reason to give Justin Trudeau a, not just a win but a majority. Majority. Yeah. And that's a tough that's a tough mountain, I think, for him to climb because we're not out of the woods with the pandemic. We've got very serious economic challenges. Um, complete wild card I'll throw in. Just, God forbid, let uh, 100 uh, Canadian 
uh, translators in Afghanistan be uh, be uh, killed by the Taliban, and it could be like, why did we let this happen along with the, the disaster the Americans have? And I don't think foreign policy is necessarily Trudeau's strongest suit with everything with China. Maybe his weakest. You know, what's the reason to swarm the polls to give him a majority? Um, and Singh looks like a great stopper. And I think that you're completely right, Libby, that they could pick up ground here. And I, I think that they're going to be the spoiler. Okay, I think, uh, is, it, we'll see. <laughs> is it fair to say that as of today, and, and this would be in accordance to some recent polls, that uh, they, they may uh, end up back where they started from? I, if I had to bet, I'd say that's a, give or take a few seats either way. I think you're going to see the, the same outcome. Okay. Uh, Bill, what do you think to wrap things up? Well, you know, the, at, at this point in, in election campaign, there's always the, the unexpected that can happen and, and often uh, does. Uh, but I think David's absolutely right. If we voted, uh, if the country voted today, that's what would happen. It's going to be very interesting to see if somebody stumbles or uh, or something else happens that makes a big change and surprises all between now and the September vote. Peter? Well, Libby, I, I remember uh, two years ago you made the excellent call that the bloc were gaining steam in Quebec when no one had them on their radar. So I, I guess the bloc is another wild card we haven't discussed. Like, can they hold on to their 32 seats and grow it even? And that would pose some problems for a liberal majority for sure. Well, that's it. That is actually the key question to to their plans. And, and uh, you know, I think I have to delve into the math on that a little more before I, I, I give an opinion. <laughs> but you know what, guys, we are going to be talking about this often. Be. So uh, <laughs> we'll have to see if next week, when I will be in British Columbia, if, if things look more or less the same or different. Uh, in the meantime, thank you so much, Bill Van Gorder, Peter Mugridge, and David Kravitz. Thank you, Libby. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are taking a break. When we come back, well, uh, you know, on Friday, uh, the government, the liberal government said there's going to be mandatory vaccination for federal employees. Uh, What does their union or one of their unions think about that? Is that going to be problematic to put into effect? We will have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.